Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, the show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and you're listening to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Today's show is brought to you by OneSkin. Once again, the Not Old Better Show is bringing to you another episode that resonates with our audience and furthers our commitment to understanding and navigating the complexities of our times. Remember, aging is a privilege. It's where your power is. It's where your strength lies. I've been a radio journalist for a decade, celebrating my 10th year this year with you, and I love what I do to bring compelling, interesting, action-oriented stages. And I love what I do to bring compelling, interesting, action-oriented stories to you, all of you in the sick. And I love what I do to bring compelling, interesting, action-oriented stories to you, all in the 60-plus age range, including your families. I've always tried to remain positive in my storytelling, despite the negative, divisive, and depressing news that is sometimes right in front of us. I know from your emails and correspondence with me, that you all want to remain positive too, but you want to be informed and engaged with today's issues. The Not Old Better Show weekly tackles tough yet positive topics that speak to our community, speak to the subject of aging, and speak to the challenge that's before us, helping you feel more empathy and empowering you to become better. So join me as we talk about better here on the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Today, Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection. And it was time to fight or die. The scene unfolding before me was heartbreaking on many levels. Not only was there the pain of seeing my colleagues being attacked with vicious animosity, but it was also watching an exquisite, sacred, grand building being destroyed. What it represented, freedom, democracy, in the center of the most powerful nation in the world, was even grander. The officers called for backup, but there weren't enough police in the city to hold back the crowds. The insurrectionists were ready for battle. The Capitol Police were not. I watched as the windows of the Capitol were smashed, the doors were kicked. And I was viewing live stream video on social media that was being taken by the insurrectionists themselves. The pictures were unsteady and chaotic, and it was sometimes difficult to see what was happening, but it was easy to see the bedlam, the fury, and the fighting. When it was clear the Capitol had been breached, Stephen Sund, the Capitol Police's chief of police, left the command center and retreated to his office. Chad Thomas, the assistant chief for uniform operations, also left. The Capitol was defeated, and so it seemed were they. But the officers under their command kept battling. They had no choice. They couldn't go into an office and close the door on the whole situation. It was fight or die for the officers. All of them fought. Some of them died. Julie Farnham, former member of the United States Capitol Police, is our guest today. She's just read a passage from her new book, Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection. You can just hear in her voice there, despite the three years since it's occurrence, Julie Farnham from the Capitol Police still 
feels the heartbreak, both personally and for the United States. Our nation's democracy faced a harrowing challenge that day, January 6th, 2021, marked a day of turmoil and terror as a white supremacist mob fervent in their attempts to stop the steal stormed the U.S. Capitol. This was not just an assault on our building. It was an assault on the very fabric of our democracy. You'll hear Julie Farnham talk today about the peaceful transfer of presidential power, how important it is, and in defending the Capitol, Julie Farnham and the Capitol Police were tragically fighting many of whom lost their lives. Nearly 140 others sustained severe, life-threatening, altering injuries. We're here today to talk to Julie Farnham about what all that means. Uh, It's a lot of things. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. It's disappointing that things turned out the way they did uh, on many levels, like, you know, what it means for our country, but also disappointing that Capitol Police leadership didn't heed the warnings that I tried to give them. Um, to try to, you know, prepare better for this and and potentially could have prevented some of this from happening. It was a scary day. I will say that even, you know, three years out, I don't know if I've fully processed everything that happened. Mm -hmm. I just left the Capitol Police in May of 2023, so just a few months ago. And I left because I was, I had this book coming out and they were very unhappy about that. But, you know, so I really haven't put a lot of like, there hasn't been a much distance between that day and like my life because I've still been fully embedded in that world and having to deal with that. So I think over time I'll process it better, but for right now it's still, um, it's, it brings up a lot of feelings, a lot of feelings, a lot of difficult feelings and a lot of with, uh, I just wish it could have been a different day and the day turned out differently. We will talk today to Julie Farnham a lot about that day. It was terrifying, not just for the immediate danger it presented, but for the stark revelation of our own vulnerabilities. Julie Farnham watched almost in a disassociated state as the symbol of our nation's democracy was besieged by its own citizens. The screams, the fear, the chaos. Julie Farnham says that it was like watching a nightmare unfold in broad daylight. Even now, three years later, the full impact of what transpired on that chaotic day, even from a couple of blocks away, feels elusive, like a dark cloud that Julie Farnham can't quite escape. Yeah, I mean, that day, so I was in the Capitol Police Headquarters building, which is next to the Dirksen Senate building. So if you haven't been to D.C. and you haven't met to the Capitol, there's the Capitol complex, which includes the Capitol building itself, but also several other buildings. There's three Senate buildings, three house, three library, and a few other buildings like the building I was in. Um, So I was just a couple blocks away from the Capitol. Um, But that day, you know, I was in my office and it was such like a chaotic time and like watching everything that was happening. And my team, my intelligence team, we were watching the videos of it and we were capturing um, pictures and images of people who are committing unlawful acts Mm. like in the moment. Mm. And we were just putting those aside so that we could deal with those later when, you know, people were arrested and prosecutions because we saw what was going on. We knew this was very bad and we knew that down the road there would be prosecutions. So we were, we were really focused on that. So um, we didn't have time necessarily to be, 
scared or upset. And, you know, fortunately for us, but unfortunately for the officers, we weren't there fighting. The officers were out there fighting and in the thick of it. We were in an office just, you know, a couple blocks away. But um, still, like we, it was just so chaotic and we just had to be so focused on what we were doing that we really didn't have time to be scared or be upset in that moment. Especially disconcerting was that Julie Farnham had seen the signs. She'd read the undercurrents of discontent and danger brewing. Julie Farnham tried to warn the leadership at the Capitol Police. The Capitol Police needed to be prepared. They needed to take the threat seriously. But Julie Farnham's words, mired in a system that often overlooked the insights of a woman, fell on deaf ears. Yeah, I think there was a few different factors. Um, Some of it was like a complacency and maybe even an arrogance on the Capitol Police's part. They deal with protests and demonstrations almost every single day. Like, Mm -hmm. it is what happens at the Capitol. And that's that's understandable. People come to the Capitol to demonstrate, you know, for one policy position or legislation or whatever. They're there frequently. And so that's what they do. So I think they thought, like, well, we have this. We know what we're doing. We've dealt with big protests. We don't need help from anyone else. And that was that was a significant flaw in that they didn't request help from other people, from other departments. And, you know, National Guard aside, and I know a lot has been discussed about that and why weren't they there and were they mm-hmm. called in. That aside, the Capitol Police could have called in the neighboring jurisdictions ahead of time, like, you know, Arlington, Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia, Montgomery County in Maryland. All of those neighboring jurisdictions could have been there and could have helped the Capitol Police. They weren't called until, you know, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon when the riot was at its height. So that was a significant failure on the Capitol Police's part. Also, my team had a very bad reputation. I had only been there for about two months, 72 days to be exact. And I was brought in, and when I was brought in, I was told that my team needed a complete revamp. I had a team of 11 intelligence analysts. Most of them had never received any formal intelligence training. They were very siloed, so they didn't communicate well within the Capitol Police, but also they did not communicate almost at all with other law enforcement agencies or with the intelligence community. So they weren't sharing intelligence, they weren't communicating with others, and they had a reputation for producing intelligence reports that were not of high quality. So I think all those factors there contributed to why uh, why January 6th happened. Um, but that said, you know, I did write an intelligence report that warned of the violence, warned of what I was seeing, And in addition to that intelligence assessment, I had also sent up close to 70 pieces of raw intelligence to the Capitol Police leadership. And I discussed some of those pieces um, in the book. Mm -hmm. I can give an example here. So this is what I sent up on December 27th, 2020 to Capitol Police leadership. It says, um, I sent up a summary of concerning social media posts that included things such as armed and ready Mr. President show up with guns and threaten them with death. No revolution has ever been won without violence and kill the opposition. So those are some of the things that we were seeing ahead of January 6th and that was communicated up my chain to the Capitol Police. 
that gender dynamics played a role. Julie Farnham really felt like being a woman in an organization that was male-dominated meant that it was harder to speak up and be heard. You know, with with women, you know, women are often seen as not being credible, at least not at first. You have to say what you want to say, you know, many times before people hear you. Whereas when a man speaks, they are assumed to have authority and they are taken seriously. So I think that did play a fact, you know, whether it was an implicit bias or they just were overtly not um, valuing what a woman had to say. I do think that that played a, a factor. The other part of it is, is, you know, when January 6th happened and Fund was fired, Fund in particular, he blamed the intelligence, even though he had the intelligence. It wasn't an intelligence failure. And I think he pegged some of his failures on me because I was a woman and he thought that I wouldn't fight back. Mm -hmm. And I think he thought he could get away with it. Um, And and that's part of the reason why I wanted to write the book because people who are talking about me and telling my story without me having a voice in it. And, you know, usually it was told in a way to support a narrative of painting, you know, something that was not actually accurate or true. And um, so I had to speak up. We'll be right back with author, former Capitol Police Executive Director Julie Farnham. So please stay tuned. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. Isn't it interesting how the holidays can leave us feeling spent, not just emotionally, but visibly on our very skin? Well, there's a silver lining to this. It gives us the perfect opportunity to start anew, especially with our skincare. OneSkin can help your skin bounce back with science-backed TLC that not only refreshes, but reverses the signs of aging from the inside out. OneSkin is at the frontier of skincare with their scientifically proven peptide called OS1, specifically targeting the cellular level where fine lines and wrinkles begin. This isn't just about a temporary fix. It's about a genuine reversal of time. Their extensive product range is not just a promise, but a proven path to healthier skin. As someone who's not just your guide, but also a fellow traveler on this journey, my face shows the signs of age, and I've incorporated one skin into my own regimen. What struck me most was the simplicity. It's as straightforward as cleanse, pat dry, and apply. So twice a day, that's all I do. And it's been a seamless addition to my routine. I use one skin on my face and eye. The products are amazing. They've become non-negotiables for me. The real surprise, though, was the resilience it brought to my skin, something I hadn't anticipated, but I'm thoroughly enjoying. And now you have the chance to experience this too. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company that focuses on cellular aspects of aging. OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. They're offering you, my listeners here on the Not Old Better Show, an exclusive 15% off with the code NOB at oneskin.co. Get started today with 15% off using the code NOB at oneskin.co. That's 15% off 
at oneskin.co with the code NOB. All of this will be in our show notes. But remember, when you support them, you're supporting the show. So please tell them I sent you. Here's to a new year and healthier skin with One Skin. So please stay tuned with more from our guest, author, former Capitol Police Executive Director, Julie Farnham. As we learn more about the current state of extremist groups in America, there's a thought it's mixed with concern and a deep sense of urgency in the aftermath of January 6th, it's become increasingly clear that groups like QAnon, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, which have always really lurked in the shadows of our society, are evolving in both strategy and visibility. For years, these groups existed on the fringes, their hateful ideologies and calls for violence echoing within their closed circles. However, what has become alarmingly apparent in recent times is their trans into the mainstream. The shift has been fueled in part by certain individuals in positions of power who have unwittingly or otherwise given these groups a platform, a voice that they have never had before. This emboldening of extremist groups is not just a matter of concern, it represents a significant threat to the fabric of our society. In the wake of January 6th, the landscape of these groups has undergone a noticeable change. While some, like Oath Keepers, have seen a decline in their activities, others, particularly white supremacist groups, have found new ways to thrive. I think what has really lent itself to the rise of these groups is that we have people in power who have given them a platform and given them a voice. These are elements of our society that have always, unfortunately, existed, but they've always been fringe elements. And they have been really brought been brought into the mainstream. And that's what's really alarming. And then post-January 6th, we are seeing not all the groups have fared the same way. Um, Oath Keepers, you know, is not as active as they were, you know, before January 6th and on January 6th. But other groups like some of these white supremacist groups have really flourished. But what we've seen is that they've changed tactics. And so now they're trying to um, embed themselves into the community by doing things like community service or getting involved in local politics. And that's really dangerous because we are seeing them take a tactic that's really been used effectively by foreign terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda, where um, they have incremental bringing in of this hate and, and adhering to this hate and this radicalization. So you can't go in to, a, to a, you can't go to a person and say, okay, well, now I want you to commit this violent act because that's like a bridge too far. But you can say, okay, can you do this? And then can you do a little more and then a little more and a little more? And then before you know it, they are quite hateful and have the potential to be violent. In her book, Domestic Darkness, Julie Farnham admits to a less than savory relationship with a D.C. cop who's since been arrested and charged with assisting the Proud Boys on January 6th. Julie is candid about this relationship with D.C. Police, Metropolitan Police Department Lieutenant Shane Lamond. 
So I did have a relationship with um, D.C. Police Metropolitan Police Department Lieutenant Shane Lamond, who has since been arrested and he is charged with um, assisting the leader of the Proud Boys and mm. providing information to him. Um, at the time, uh, I did not realize that uh, he was doing anything nefarious. Mm. Um, I did know he was talking to Enrique Tario, the head of the Proud Boys, um, but I was under the impression that it was a normal, like, officer-informant-type relationship. Um, and I knew Tario had been an informant. That wasn't strange to me that he was talking to him. But whether or not he used me for information, that I don't know. And um, to be honest, like, when I get asked that question, and I don't mind you asking the question at mm-hmm, all, mm-hmm. but it, it's hurtful to me because sure. then it makes me think, like, well, did I miss something? What did I miss? And how did I not see the signs? And was he genuine? Was he lying the whole time? And it just, you know, like makes my head spin because I'm not sure the answer to that question. Um, So I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, he seemed genuine when I was with him, but um, knowing what I know now, I certainly would have made um, different decisions and would not have entered in a relationship with him. But to be to be credible in the book, I need to be honest, um, and I need to be honest about what I could have done differently too in my mistakes. And so that's why I did put it in the book. This has not been easy. Julie Farnham has faced many hardships in writing this book, and the personal consequences in coming forward have been significant. Julie Farnham is no longer with the Capitol Police. Her professional life and career, and then her personal life now, have been tough. It's been difficult on her being a whistleblower and then coming forward. That's a good question. Actually, you're the first person to ask me that question. So um, kudos to you. This is uh, this is good. Um, but, you know, I left, as I mentioned, I left the Capitol Police in May of 2023. And that ended my federal career. And I had almost two decades in the federal government. And I had planned to retire in the federal government. So that definitely changed plans. It was not what I had wanted or what I anticipated. Um And I left, so I had started the Capitol Police in October 2020, and I joined the Capitol Police because I was working for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is a component of the Department of Homeland Security. They are self-funded. During the pandemic, I was getting furloughed, and I have bills, and I need a job. So that's why I went over to the Capitol Police. And it's ironic that I ended up leaving the Capitol Police in a way where it left me without a job and without a paycheck. And that's what had driven me there in the first place. So it was hard. Um, it was really hard. But I started my own company, my own business. It's called Pandora's Intelligence. And we do open source intelligence and investigative um, work. And so that's good and that's going well. Um, but it, it, it has been hard. And, you know, after January 6th, too, as I mentioned, like I was really like scapegoated and... Mm-hmm blamed for a lot of what happened. And that, um, and that was hard because, you know, I was maybe a little bit naive and thinking like, well, well, why would someone do this to me? Because I was the one who sounded the alarm um, and not really understanding like the full forces or not anticipating 
the politics of it all beforehand. So um, that was hard. And like really having my reputation that I had worked, you know, so hard mm-hmm. at cultivating and like just, you know, working my way up in my career and then having that attacked um, by people who were, you know, trying, attacking me and trying to like, hurt me to try to elevate themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it wasn't easy. It, it, it has not been an easy three years. And I always say, you know, I wish I didn't have to have experienced and lived something that led me to write a book. I would have rather, rather had, you know, the past three years be fine and <laughs> um, not need to write a book, but we are where we are right now. Based on Julie, Farnham's experience and the insights from January 6th, there are measures and tactics to consider that are necessary to prevent similar events in the future, especially with the 2024 presidential election approaching. We're approaching the 2024 presidential election. Some of Julie Farnham's investigative work currently is thinking about what might happen in the future in various realms. Perhaps the presidential election is one of those areas. Just what are the measures and what does Julie Farnham believe will be necessary in order to prevent similar events that might lead to another challenging confrontation, especially during the upcoming presidential election? I think it's a few things. One, we do need to seriously look at domestic extremism. Mm -hmm. The government has traditionally been kind of hands off when it comes to domestic extremism. And I understand like the concerns about, you know, privacy and civil liberties, but I do believe there is a way to balance that versus the need for public safety and making sure that we are recognizing, recognizing and identifying the threats. So I think that's first and foremost, I think bigger picture, though, we need elected officials and leaders in our country to be leaders. We can't have them denying something that is so obvious. Like when you when I hear them say January 6th was just, you know, tourists and they were peaceful protesters like they know it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So don't lie to the American people. We need people to speak the truth and not lie in order to persuade people and manipulate people. And that's really what it comes down to. And um, they don't need to give a voice to hate. If hate exists, hate does exist. But when it is seen and it is heard, it needs to be called out and recognized and named as hate instead of dismissing it or embracing it, which is even worse. And then I think fostering a sense of like critical thinking and this gets to some of the conspiracy theories and things like that. QAnon, QAnon, conspiracy theories still exist. QAnon isn't necessarily the be-all, end-all of it anymore, just because it's taken on a life of its own and it doesn't need that. Those individuals who adhere to those conspiracies don't need Q, uh, the person who is leaving the information and started all this. They don't need Q anymore. Conspiracy theories have just been part, have become part of our, our of our life now, and so um, improving critical thinking skills and training children and helping them recognize and ask questions, I think, is important as well. Are you concerned that there will be violence surrounding the twenty twenty four presidential election? I 
do, I don't think it'll be something like January 6th necessarily, Mm -hmm. because I think the Capitol Police will be prepared for that this time. Mm -hmm. That's the threat they know now. Um, I am more concerned about violence directed at elected officials or at candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm running for office here in Arlington, Virginia. And when I announced, I received seven different death threats. Mm -hmm. And that in my time at Capitol Police, I dealt with, you know, about 20,000 different threats against members of Congress. And it's on both sides of the aisle. Um, both sides do it and make threats. And that's not acceptable ever. And so we, I do think that, you know, if there is violence, it's probably going to be like a lone wolf directing violence at a candidate or an elected official. Julie Farnham, our guest today, former director of intelligence at the Capitol Police, just a excellent book. Again, our subject of discussion today has been Julie's new book titled Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. Julie, my best to you. Thank you again for your time today. Congratulations on the book and for your, for all that you're doing. And and I, I think there's, there's definitely been... Um, toll and we're grateful for your efforts and energy on on all of our behalf towards this end because it's it's meaningful work and so we very much appreciate it julie and thanks for your time today thank you thanks for joining us this week on the not old better show to find out more about all of today's stories or to view our extensive back catalog of previous shows simply visit notold-better.com Join us again next time as we deep dive into some of the most fascinating real-life stories from across the world, all focused on this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Hi, one final thing. Today's show was edited for length. To hear the full interview, please check out our website for this episode and all episodes at notold-better.com or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out your local radio stations to find out more about The Not Old Better Show on podcast and radio. You can find us all over social media. Our Twitter feed is Not Old Better, and we're on Instagram at Not Old Better, too. The Not Old Better Show is a production of NOBS Studios. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and I hope you'll join me again next time to talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.